In this episode, our first Patreon special, we're shifting the focus away from the three of us and putting that choice to one of you instead. So, at the suggestion of regular listener Adam Chivers, we'll be looking at the album Black Market Music by Placebo. Released in the year 2000, Placebo entered the studio to record album three with a new sense of confidence and bravado. Sometimes pretty, often menacing, and fueled by a well-stocked medicine bag, Black Market Music received wildly varied reviews by the press and reached number six in the UK charts. Adam claims that this album can quite easily bring him to tears, so let's see how it affects us. Thanks for supporting the show. This is Black Market Music by Placebo, suggested by Adam Chivers. You're listening to Between the Tracks, a book club but for music. Join the conversation at tracks.show. We'll see you in the pubs. Bounce. <laughs> yes, we will. Keeping yes. it current. Keeping it current. You're going to start doing news segments. Yeah. Might do the news of the day in that little drop. Topical Charlie. Yep. All right. Hello and welcome back to Between the Tracks. This week we have the Patreon special, which is Placebo's Black Market Music. First ever one. First ever one ever. My name is Carl Lewis. With me, as always, is Charlie Fowler. Hello, Carl. And Christopher R.I. Bunt. All right, Carl. Hello, mate. How the devil are you, boys? Well, we've got a pub trip for the first time in about six months queued up. Pubs are open. So we're good, I think. It's happening. It's happening. But since we started this podcast, I remember going, God, boys, think, when we wrap this most normal weeks. You can call it wrap. When we wrap. (laughs) Is that all right? Yep. Yeah. We can have a wrap party every week at the pub. Rip party. Oh, rip party. And it's going to happen for the first time today. Yep. The world's changing. See you there. We're back. Aren't a Guinness it's happening. Glass. Sound the alarm. Mm. I'm back to uh, back to Maggie's farm, aren't I? I'm back to oh yeah, yeah. See, so hey, topical. Like back it. to work. Back to the work for the first time, also in about six months. So exhausted, but you know, you don't sound it. <laughs> no, I do. <laughs> I sound like Barry Wade. Give us your um, Morgan Freeman. Everybody likes to sound of my Andy Dufresne. We felt free. Excellent. Album chat? What do you think? What do you what do you what's your you want to do first impressions or you want to you know what yeah do you want to do last impressions? I think first impressions because this is something that I would have absolutely loved when I was like seventeen, eighteen, mm. and listening to it back now, I managed to tap into that place and actually really, really enjoyed it. Okay. I don't listen to that much music of this type anymore, but I can still appreciate it because I still have that in in me. Tiny little Carl, this was you on the way up. Absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah fair. With this album, I was afraid that you would have had to have listened to it back when you were 17 or 18. Right. For, then, for then to reflect on it and still have that feeling. I was finding it hard to, to, to be that 17-year-old kid and, and enjoy it. Okay. Yeah, to tap into that. To tap into stuff, that, yeah. yeah. I was finding that difficult on this. Is that just a thing for our age or is it... Because in my head, the albums that came out around the year 2000, and I'm thinking of the maybe like the new metal and the rock phase that were happening there, that seems so of a time and almost doesn't translate outside of that time very well. Mm-hmm. And like you said, Charlie, you needed to try and access that person in you, which you struggled with. Is that just because that was our time or do you reckon that's the genre? I think it's the genre. I think it's one of the least timeless genres yeah. of all time, really the early 2000s new yeah. metal kind of thing. I think that was not very timeless. Some bands remain timeless, but if you listen now to like, something that came out then like Korn or Limp Bizkit or, or Linkin Park or something like that. Yeah. It is only, for me, it's very reminiscent rather than an enjoyable modern listen. Yeah. I only listen to it and remember times rather than thinking it's relevant now. 
whereas some other artists, if you go further back than that, listen to like the Rolling Stones, you don't think about the time that that came out. You just listen to it now as a piece of music and enjoy it. Sure. Yeah. There's definitely, that's a good point. there's definitely something nostalgic about this style of music, but I fortunately enough managed to tap into that younger version of myself and let him listen to it. Yeah. And through that got a really good, enjoyable listen from mm, it. Mm, interesting. Nice. Good. You want to jump into it straight up? Can do, yeah. A little bit of information up top. As we mentioned in the intro, it is the third studio album from Placebo, released on the 9th of October in the year 2000 on Hut Records with a label, which was a sub-label of Warner. Reached number six in the UK album charts. So yeah, let's jump straight in. This is Placebo's Black Market Music, our first Patreon episode, suggested to us by Adam Chivers, and this is track one, Taste in Men. That was track one, Taste in Men. First single from the album, released 17th of July in the year 2000, reaching number 16 in the UK charts. I think that's a great album opener. It is. I really do. It reminded me of when we were talking earlier on in this run, in this, um, in this season. It was probably even the first episode when we were talking about imagining openers for a show. Mm-hmm. I think it, it, it was that. Yeah, it would have been. It was when we were listening to Snail Mail. Yeah. And I was imagining what this would feel like as the opener to a show mm-hmm. with that with that great um, bass riff. And that's a that's a Pink Floyd bass riff, right? Yeah. So the Which, whole thing samples a song called Let There Be More Light by Pink Floyd. Yeah, that blew my mind. Going back to it, I was like, really? It's crazy. Yeah, look, I'll play it for you now. Like, Which is fucking cool. Yeah. That is a great riff, right? Yeah. <laughs> Roger Waters hamming it up. And this was uh, Sid Barrett era? Just after, I think. I think just after he left, yeah. Second okay. album, Source Full of Secrets. But yeah, cool, man. I love it. <laughs> I'll, is... I'll take that bass tone over the, the placebo one, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, I like that. I don't like it with the, with the processing on no. it. No? This gives me an energy. It gives me an excitement. And again, it's, it's going to be difficult to not compare these guys oh, with God, yeah. Limp Bizkit and with all the stuff that was happening at the time because they were keen to coexist but keen to have enough separation between them because they really didn't like what Limp Bizkit were doing, which which I'll definitely get to. I'm sure we'll all get to well, later. Yeah, yeah. This is my crisis with the album, if I'm honest with you. In, what, in what sense? I find it hard to to listen to Brian talk about the fact that he does not want to be in any way related to these bands. Yeah. But in the same breath, there's so many elements that pull it that direction. Oh, it's weird. I sort of see what he's saying. Because well, maybe it's easier if I make a point, and don't forget where you finished off there, Carl. But just this morning, just when I was on the way over, I was thinking of you know the song "Nookie" by by Limp Bizkit. I was thinking what I actually wanted more from Taste in Men was I wanted it to really, really drop and be really, really heavy when everyone comes in, mm-hmm. because in "Nookie" it does that. And you know, and this also reminds me of like Block Rocking Beats by Chemical Brothers. It reminds me a bit of Sabotage by Beastie Boys. It's that same sort of totally. yeah, yeah, that's thing. good shout. It's that that's sort of like energetic opener with a big drop in it. And they don't really do the big drop in this. And what I was thinking that means in the other environments, they're all sort of like a masculine, and I use the term masculine as in like um, heavy, muscular. Macho. And macho, yeah. Um, those songs do that, but this song doesn't do that. And I think that's where the antithesis to those songs are is. Um, if you listen to an EP by Nine Inch Nails called The Broken EP, 
Um, there's a song on that called Wish, which Brian Mulco does list as an influence to this song. Um, he says that the nastiness of that song, the way it sounded and the, and the fact that it was almost unlistenable, that's what he wanted to bring into this song, which does, it gives it attention, but with that, it breeds some excitement. Yeah, it does. It felt like a bit of an art piece, this song to me in a sense, because there's not an awful lot going on lyrically in terms of, there's not verse after verse. Mm -hmm. It feels like it sets a scene. I suppose coming back to the idea of it opening a live show, again, it sets a, a sonic, it sets a, a theme mm -hmm. pretty nicely um, without overcrowding your mind with too much lyrical content, I think. Definitely, right. yeah. He acknowledges its, its lyrical simplicity. It certainly possesses the elements of what placebo are still, I think. I don't, I don't think it, it shies away from that. But then again, Brian Marco's voice is so incredibly identifiable. Definitely. Um, you, there's no mistaking who this is when you hear it. Yeah, and I wonder if a lot of people, the reason they didn't like placebo or latch onto placebo was because of the voice. Because, mm. you know, we, we've had multiple conversations about one of my favorite bands, The Smashing Pumpkins, and people not being able to get past Billy Corgan's voice to then enjoy the band. And I wonder if that is, that his voice is a bit of a gatekeeper to the fan base. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, that he is unfaltering with that. His voice sounds like that throughout everything they've ever done. He's not hiding behind it. So, um, so yeah, let's let's move on through and hear more of that. So this is track two, Days Before You Came. That was track two, Days Before You Came. So that feels more like the placebo that I know of, I think, yeah. than Taste in Men does, I think. I actually really like this song. I do. Um, this album was produced by Paul Corkett, mm -hmm. who was a engineer, mix engineer. He also did Front of House for The Cure. Uh, so in the live show, Front of House being the, um, the engineer that looks after the sound of the audience here. Yeah, he was doing Front of House for The Cure, and he came in and produced this album. He'd worked with him before, and he, he worked on The Cure's albums as well. And I love, I do love this, the production of this album, but I don't adore the mix. Uh, okay. Yeah. So in this song, there's some moments that when, when it picks up into the chorus part, I guess, or the pre-chorus where it's heavier, it just isn't deep enough for me. Yeah. yeah. I feel like yeah. that, I don't know what, it seems like the dynamic range of it just isn't deep enough for me to get a real like, oh, there it is, like a drop. Yeah. I don't know whether that's a calculated thing or a mix thing, but it just doesn't really do it for me, but I still, I still really enjoy the songs. Like, I love this song. This is probably one of my favorites on the album, but it's just not deep enough. With, um, with Noisy, they ask him about, um, to, they ask him to rank his albums, and this comes out as his least favorite album, Brian Marcos, and he talks about this album feeling quite flat and colorless. Mm -hmm. He talks a lot about color, um, I think, and I guess what that means, if you, to translate that, is probably about dynamics and, um, and variation. And yeah, he says this is, uh, this is quite a monochrome album, mm -hmm. um, you know, represented by the artwork as well. And, um, and I, I feel the same. I feel like the, dynamically, I, I want more from it personally. Yeah. Uh, most, most definitely. And that doesn't take away from the songwriting for me. It's more the execution. Right. And, and he, he says that in that same um, interview, he talks about how it doesn't really conjure up any euphoria to him. Right. Okay. And the songs have the potential for that in, in my listener, in, in my personal listening of it. Yeah. But it just doesn't seem to, smash that mark i love the in this song the i didn't want you anyway and then the like the response from the instruments mm -hmm. uh, i think that's that's really cool uh, and, and the guitar sounds are so abrasive sometimes and so like mm. 
so cold almost. It's, Matsu it's, placebo. Yeah, that's really yeah. It's 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 really it's really cool. That's a great way of describing them. Cold. When you do get to to, to the warmer parts of the album, it you really go, wow. Okay, that was. I didn't realize that this was quite as like quite as aggressive or quite as it's like aggressive in a, in a really delicate way. It's, mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's not an easy thing to do, man. It's not it, because usually aggression is, is like chuck everything at it, make it really, really grimy. And, 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 and it isn't always like that on this album. I think that's, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. I, I imagine, you know, certain bands record albums and the album is the final product to them. And some people write music and record music and the live show is the final thing. Yeah. I know. I mean, I've seen this band before. I saw them at Sonosphere in like fucking 2008 or something. And I remember it being good, but I only really knew Pure Morning was probably the only song by then that, I, that I'd known. Yeah. And imagining this live, like when I hear these songs and I talk about the dynamic, dynamic range and it being a bit thin, I'm like, but I can imagine it goes off live. Like I can imagine that to yeah, be yeah. a real overwhelming experience live. Yeah, yeah. Especially watching the couple of live videos I'd done in the research. It's like just tops off, dressed in drag, just going nuts. And yeah. I, that to me, I just love it. It taps into that whole Manson like live really raw kind of yeah thing. talks about Marilyn Manson a lot actually in a lot of the he does yeah that and um he calls him Satan yeah yeah well you know you know where we're at with Manson at the moment so maybe he you know, well yeah because yeah yeah we have to uh we have to disavow any any colorful references to exactly Manson. this was uh one of Stefan's faves to play live which I find surprising because it's not like bass wise it's not the most interesting on the album by a long way I think maybe if you get it right though you know yeah. that there's sometimes there's like I said, that that bit that didn't want you anyway. That that bit where the bass comes in and props up the guitar and stuff. Maybe yeah. it's just and Sat maybe it's just satisfying. Yeah, and it's just feeling, isn't it? It's like the pace is good. Mm -hmm. Like it's ready to it's ready to go off. Um, lyric wise, I found it uh, really interesting. You know, there's there's a lot about there's a lot about sexuality on this album. There's a lot about addiction and 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 drugs and stuff. And there's also quite a lot about you know self harm and 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 state of mind and and some religion as well and and re yeah of course and religion but this seems like it's uh mostly about addiction and that's where i didn't want i didn't want you anyway this being not being able to be in control of the things that are dragging you dragging you into a situation yeah um which is something that they also you know they, they revisit again later on the album that's definitely a recurring theme mm. i think i mm. i saw somewhere brian referred to this as this song being about drugs and love and the effects of the combination of the yeah, two. Yeah. And so there's a lot of times through this where addiction can be in a guise of drugs when it's actually talking about love and sure. vice versa. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, yeah. But yeah. it's left open to interpretation. It's quite cool as well. He, I got a quote from him here saying that um, my lyrics are definitely getting less and less autobiographical, less like a diary and more like stories. But at the same time, I identify with all the characters within the stories um, it's just that the narrator's voice isn't always mine. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's, so I that's thought good. that's quite a good, because I wanted to, I wanted to understand how he was writing it in this album. Yeah. And I think that sums it up quite well, actually. Yeah. That's, that's fairly, that's fairly um, decent, actually. Just as a, a little introspective moment in, in my mind and how I, how I go off on some things here. I just looked into a horn of plenty and that is the, that's the line, uh, that being cornucopius, that's in Greek mythology. It's the two lines are towns that change their name and a horn of plenty. And I was thinking what that meant. I went down this whole rabbit hole of like, well, uh, horn of plenty, cornucopia, does that represent uh, a certain place uh, or whatever? And there's some places in America that they have um, this. Uh, so the cornucopia is the, is, the um, is it a goat's horn? I uh, think lamb's it's, horn. Lamb, oh, no, 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 it's a lamb's horn. Okay. It's the lamb of God, isn't it? It's the lamb's horn. Yeah, I was looking at this in America and 
in like Idaho and North Carolina and stuff, they have these in their, um, I'm not going to say coat of arms, but it's part of their um, branding, what, what, branding, <laughs> <laughs> their, their state branding. And then also, um, well, I, I was just tracing through what that, it, what that whole Horn of Plenty thing and that whole cornucopia thing is. And it often alludes to um, the supermarkets of America as well. I was thinking what that meant. This is the definition know, of a rabbit I, hole. Do you know what? Like, you know, and, Dig yourself and out, I was thinking, boy. Okay, and I, was, I went into this whole thing. I was like, okay, what towns have changed their names and why would they have done that? And it's, and it's probably to like entice, you know, to change the branding, as yeah, you said, yeah. the branding of a town. Um, and I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to like round this, the sentence off. I don't know. Is it a statement on consumerism or something? It probably is. And, you know, talking about supermarkets and talking about branding and talking about consumerism, Oh, fuck, let's I know let's, what you're ha- about let's to have do. a little think about that whilst we move on to track three, which is called Special K. <laughs> fuck off. Track three, Special K. I did BVs on this track. <laughs> I, d- I noticed. Oh, I love cereal, don't you? I do love cereal. Yeah, this is all about... Uh, um, no, yeah. it's not. They were, they we were actually, did not. you know they were actually paid $500,000 by Kellogg's to call this song Special K? No, they were not. No, they weren't. You look at your face, you liar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you bloody liar. So yeah, that was Special K. Uh, third single from the album. Mm-hmm. Felt like a single, I, th- I think. Yeah. I think. yeah. This was massive for them. Mm-hmm. That bass line, man. It's so... It, pleases me so much do, 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 do. You know, yeah yeah and, oh. and it's, it's great that it's like that's chantable it's one of those things if it you're is, playing yeah. it live you're not going to get anything but the audience yeah. singing that back and it's backed up by brian's vocal as well as yeah. stuff that's that's really really smart yeah what i find interesting about this is i find this i find the placing of track two and track three really strange because they're in the same key and the the chords are exactly the same mm. you can sing both of that you can sing special k and days before you came together yeah when I was first listening to this and writing some notes down, I was like, why isn't Days Before You Came, why wasn't that a single? But actually, I think this song is the single version of Days Before You Came. Got you, yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah, they're very similar. And you know, that placing next to each other, thinking about things in an album format, Yeah, probably makes sense. This was still around the time where digital versions of music were coming onto the scene properly. Mini discs. Bring, that, bring back those mini discs. Sometimes. I think you're the only person that yeah. both of us know that have had one. Nah, that's not true. That you still have a collection? Nah, someone stole it. Did they? Yeah. <laughs> Good. They probably burnt it because it was useless. Nah. Out my not. car. Was it out of your car? No, I think. No one has a mini display on a car. Oh. No. Uh, yeah. No. I guess you could if you got if you got a sweet tape tape deck and straight in on that, no, in the headphone port, like you would a like you would your Alba CD Walkman, you know? Did you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, could you buy mini disc versions of an album? Were they always just like? No, they're all rips. Right. Got you. Good. Hmm. Well, I mean, I'm coming out so confident in that. It could be absolute bollocks, but I've never seen a branded one. I think it was like a floppy disk. It was like you could stick stuff on it. Floppy disk. All right. Hey, still see them, you know? No. Floppy disk. Keyboards. You get get like an old um, Yamaha DX7 to load the sounds in. It's all on floppy disks. I see. There you go. There you go. Anyway, tangent over. I once, on the subject of floppy disk. Tangent Tangent back on. (laughs) I was working with a band who had a Yamaha DX7. And one of the floppy disks, they had it and it had all the sounds and they were a Fleetwood Mac band. They were doing all the shit and all of the sounds for the, uh, what's her name? Not Stevie Nicks, Christine McVie stuff was mm. on this DX7 floppy disk and I had to make a backup of it. 
So I bought, Terrifying. I had to buy a floppy disk, external floppy disk thing for a MacBook. There you go. Still got it go. somewhere. <laughs> so um, this was the third single, but wasn't eligible for charts. Did you read that? I did read about it. Yeah, they had a tough time with this, didn't they? Yeah. So initially they wanted to release it as a two-part CD set, but radio refused to play the song because of the drug references in it. And they took to the website and said the following, they said, the British music industry, which has recently been championing disposable, facile pop and music, which promotes homophobia, misogyny and violence, has in its infinite wisdom taken offense to the lyrical content of our new single, Special K. This combined with our ongoing dissatisfaction with the two CD system, since we feel it rips off genuine music fans, has forced us to take the decision to bypass the system completely. Special K will therefore be released on one single, available at regular CD single price, and comprise of eight items which will make it non-chart eligible. Well, there you go. We feel it's the best deal for our fans, and that it drives home the statement that we don't care about chart positions. Pretty badass. Yeah, yeah. He said, though, that this single isn't about drugs. He said this is about the holidays. This is about your Christmases, your Valentines, and loneliness during that period, and, and hating those times when you're expected to be, you know, enjoying it and surrounded by people, and not everybody actually... Has that opportunity? Was that so he could get it back on radio? He was like, Probably, well, maybe, well, I've, maybe I've that was. Him, I've seen him say both because I think it's written as a very thinly veiled metaphor, right? Where I think the actual meaning is about love and holidays and stuff like that, veiled in a ketamine veil cave. Because um, I took a quote from it says, "Special K compares the rush of falling in love with the rush of coming up on drugs." That's a theme that runs through the album, and that's what people get addicted to most in life, love and drugs. And they're often the same. People have the same reactions to both, and that theme runs through our work. This idea of addiction, whether it be to people, emotions, substances, or situations. Mm. So I think he's juxtaposing the two against each other and using metaphors to stick with the placebo theme of let's all get wild on drugs, but also showing, showing some love. Do you see the video for this, um, this song? The is that where he goes I, in the little spaceship? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's great. But, but this is this is the whole thing that Adam, Adam was talking about. When yeah. I listened to this, I was like, yeah, I get it. And even the colouring of the video and mm. the the special effects at the time and everything, that this video was the thing that, that did the best to transport me back to my 17-year-old self. And I was like, yeah. oh, I feel it. Watching Kerrang with a bloody yeah. cup of tea, being uh-huh. like, what the fuck's a cup of tea? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Video's worth a watch, though. It's all filmed at the Lord's Cricket Ground. That, that big building is um, the media centre at oh, the okay. Lord's Cricket Ground. It looks insane. It was built by someone called Future Systems. That it was built down in in Kerno, boy. Built down in Falmouth. Let it get on. All the best yeah. stuff is Durland. It was the first all aluminium semi mono. How do you say that word? Monocoque, but French. Cool. C O Q U E. Monocoque, which yeah. means uh, one penis. Single shell. No, one shell. Single shell, where the load is supported by its external skin, such as an eggshell. So it's just and the first semi semi monocoque building in the world. That one. So going back to, we mentioned earlier about religious themes through the album, there's a lyric in this song that says, or are you just my seventh seal? Which after a bit of reading, the seven seals are mentioned in the book of Revelations. He was brought up religiously, a bit like Andy Hull from Manchester Orchestra in that respect, where he was on the path to be a minister. I think his his mom wanted him to be in the ministry Mm -hmm. and his dad wanted him to be like a banker or something. And this, I think the whole persona of Brian Molko of which I assume it is a persona because it changes so much. And it's, I think that's his retaliation to that upbringing and what was expected of him. Yeah. Because he was but brought, yeah. up, brought up in Luxembourg, right? In a, and he went to a international, American international mm, school in Luxembourg. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So he was born in Brussels uh, to an American dad and a Scottish mother. And yeah, was raised over there and then moved to England. And yeah, just 
bit all over the place. But I think a lot of his attitude and a lot of his way of being is a retaliation to what he what people thought he should be. Yeah, hear that. It's in Revelations, people. <laughs> Which is, again, another Simpsons reference. Okay, I'll do them every week, don't you worry about it. Let's make a move on to track four. This is called Spite and Malice. Anyway, oh shit, we're live. Oh, fuck oh, it. We're oh, let's do it live. Do it live. We're doing a podcast. No. We'll do it live. Fuck it. Do it live. I can. I'll write May I kick this one off? Yeah, that was track four, Spite and Malice. So Brian says about the origin of this tune, eh? He says uh, it was a song started off being more about homophobia, but it took more of a political bend when the May Day riots happened and people start smashing shots. Could uh, <laughs> be good if I could talk stuff up. Those events directly influenced that song, and I think the band has taken more of a political edge. Did yeah. you say bend or bent? It would be bent. Political bent, I'm going to say. Well, that's what it was, right. but that didn't make sense to me. <laughs> no, it's political bent. Oh, no. cool. Doesn't matter. Keep it in. <sighs> Keep it on in. <laughs> so yeah, someone during the May Day riots in London stuck a big green mohawk on Winston Churchill's statue, and I think Brian Molko just found that hilarious. And that kind of inspired him to... I think it inspired the writing process of this song. I think when he saw that, he was running around the studio shouting dope guns and fucking in the streets. And that obviously made its way on the record. Mm. That was influenced from what I can see from the White Panthers. Did That's you right. That? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The White Panthers was an anti-racist movement um, born from Michigan. I think it included members of the band MC5. That's right, yeah. Uh, the- I think the the person who founded the White Panthers, was then also the manager of the MC5. Got course. you, got yeah. you, got you. There you go. Yeah, his, uh, his name was John Sinclair. That's John it. Sinclair, yeah. there you go. And the tagline for that movement was rock and roll, dope, and sex in the streets. Right. And then, obviously, he went for dope, guns, and fucking in the streets. Same message, different delivery. Yeah. I read about those May Day riots, and, you know, it's so frustrating and irritating going back 20 years and reading a report that sounds just like what's happening now with prote- with the protests and the right to, to peacefully protest and, and trying to reduce that um, and the reaction to statues and all, everything we're going mm-hmm. through now, you've just got to, you literally just get in a time machine, go about 20 years and nothing has changed. It's, no. it's infuriating, very irritating, but you know, we're not here to discuss that necessarily. Uh, back to the song itself. Um, this one was my struggle on the album. Personally, yeah. this is my struggle because... This one is is the most dated, isn't it? This it one, is, it is. This yeah. one belongs there, doesn't it, I think? And this is, I, yeah, I know I mentioned it earlier, but this is the incarnation of the the problem with the album for me in terms of, you know, that rap as, as much as lyrically that um, Justin Warfield, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's, he's not rapping about nothing. He's obviously rapping up, you know, some really thought out mm. things. Um, it just still sounds exact, exactly like a Linkin Park record or... or yeah, it's, like for me, it's, I put Linkin... It's mostly like a Linkin Park. If you're gonna if you're gonna put a pin in a band of that time, this this sounds 
like a Linkin Park thing. Now, I wouldn't include Linkin Park in the Limp Bizkit, Corn, I wouldn't either. Macho Man. I wouldn't either. No, no. I think Linkin Park were the most versatile and the most message-based band around that scene. I think some of their raps, it was Mike. Um, Mike Shinoda. Yeah. yeah. Like, he, he was fantastic and he was amazing. And so... They're almost like an emo band, really, aren't they? Hugely, man. Especially yeah. when you listen to some of the latest stuff, like, um, remember that track, Breaking the Habit? Mm. Dude, that was so fucking good, mm. man. But it mm. was. It was so emo, but so moving. And um, I guess this is them trying to tap into that because they talk about, you know, Eminem and they talk about Limp Bizkit and just having no message and just being macho and, and homophobic and, and chauvinistic. And so this is probably their attempt at diluting that with sure. their version of it. Execution-wise, probably not amazing. It doesn't stand the test of time, I well, don't think. It's, it's that hard thing, isn't it? Uh, I'm going to compare this to a... You know Flea, obviously, from Red Hot Chili Peppers? He did his own bass video, and he breaks down his style of playing, and Flea's obviously notorious for his slap bass, right? Is that where he's with Chad Smith? Uh, yeah, and yeah. River Phoenix mm. is doing the interview. Oh, yeah. And um, he's like, you know, the style I play, it's like, I try and play it like, I hate the guys that are doing it. It's all macho and 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 punk and straight down the line and i like to be more musical with it and i'm thinking mate that's exactly what you're doing like yeah, yeah. style is pretty macho in the mm. way that it comes across in this slap style anyway obviously mm. he's not macho in his mentality but i can't help but feel that they've tried to channel something in their own way but it's come across exactly the way they didn't want it to come across oh so you mean you don't think it's transcended the the, the machismo and exactly. the like. Yeah, okay. exactly. All right. I think I, I do give them some praise for trying. Yeah. It's like, you know, if someone who made like, if Nissan were taking the piss out of Lamborghinis, it would be like, unless Nissan are going to come out with a supercar in the next six months, they probably don't have a place to say that. Right. So I think this is their attempt to be like, if we're going to slam these dudes, we might as well at least give them, give the people an alternative. That was such a wild comparison. I need I needed that car because I was going on bloody flea red hot chili peppers DVDs and you've actually given it. Uh, uh, but yeah, it's like pe people in glass houses don't throw stones, and it's like yeah, you know exactly. if yeah. you, you need to wrap, you need to have a house made of wraps if you're going to throw stones at wrappers. <laughs> I'd like one of those. Yeah, that would be that would be great. Um, Keeping it under wraps. I'd, I'd love to know what this song would have been if they didn't choose to put a rapper on this because I get the understanding that it existed. And they were like, I can't find what it needs, can't find what it needs. And then this sort of appeared almost. Yeah, I think lyrically it was because Brian Mulco took a picture of that Winston Churchill statue with the mohawk on with him into the room when he was writing the lyrics and he kept using it as reference. And so maybe, you know, at the time you've got like Rage Against the Machine and those more political rappers mm. around. And then you've got the people he thought were shit, like your Limp Biscuits and stuff. Maybe he was like, all right, I want to, this is my attempt at being the politics rap. Yeah. Maybe he was like, I can't do that, so I'm going to bring someone in. Yeah. Don't know. It's an interesting choice. Sits really weirdly on the album to struggle to place it. But like I say, ab admiration for trying. Yeah, there's some things, I, there are some things I like about it. I really like the the weird pan that happens at the end where yeah, with cool. the screams, uh, with, with I guess it's Brian Marco in the back mm -hmm. screaming. Um, I, think, I think that's really good. But, but for me, yeah, it falls down a bit. I don't really like the, I don't find the... Um, the lyrical i find the lyrics a little conceited with the like because spite and malice is a card game and mm. you've got the jacks and the aces and the queens the most interesting thing that i would like to know about that is whether these you know whether when you he's talking about queens and aces and jokers and 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 whatnot whether or not he's actually assigning that to a a type of person or if it's just a, a random you know if, if you're just using those words 
quite As randomly. Rant, yeah. yeah, yeah. But that's that's where the interest would be for me. But you know, can't armor for trying. <laughs> Is that all right? And again, Carl. What was I going to say? Can't something for harm them from trying. Can't harm them from trying. Can't can't hurt them for trying. Can't. You, you what can't, the hell's that expression? You can't. What is it? You can't hurt. You can't knock them. Can't knock them for trying. Don't knock it till you tried it. Don't uh, don't knock it till you've tried it. You can't knock them for trying. Um. Anyway, let's move on. This is track five. Passive aggressive. your fault the gods in crisis he's over her every time I rise I Oh, man. Bombay mix is delicious. Isn't it? Fucking brilliant. I hated it when I was younger. Oh, it's so good. What are the, are they noodles, the little thin bits? Uh, oh, uh, they uh, do you know, they'll be made of, I reckon they'll be made of uh, chickpea flour. They're like, or oh, like a gram flour. Yeah, or something. Gra- yeah. 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 Get yeah. Boy. You can get a vindaloo Bombay mix, which is really, what, really spicy. What are those little peas as well in there? Chickpeas. Like, no, they're not chickpeas, are they? Little red boys. Oh, lentils. Oh, the linos. Are they? They don't look like lentils. Wow. They're too round. Le- Leonard Nemo's, I think they're called. Oh. Hmm. Anyway, stop being so passive aggressive on the subject of. Bombay mix. I'll have mine hot, please. <laughs> that was track five, Passive Aggressive. I get a lot of Smash of Pumpkins vibes from that one. Yeah, I, yeah, I really understand that, actually. I'll take that. Some of those like little lead breaks where it's all very like, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Really melodic lead breaks. And, uh, yeah. and then right into quiet transitions, it's got that loud, quiet thing. But then I wrote glorious, fuzzy guitars. So, well, you know, because it all comes in. There's a lot of that, actually, on this entire album where it's proper wall of guitar thing. I'm that's that's my favorite part of this album when we were talking about the mix and the the sounds Bombay mix the Bombay mix when we were talking about the mix and the sounds of the album just off off mic there we would before you just mentioned the, the snare and stuff don't you I, I don't really like the drum sound on this album mm. especially the snare the snare's too high the snare's super high but it, high in pitch or yeah, high, high in pitch, pitch and and the, the drums don't have enough presence for me personally totally i understand yeah. that for sure i yeah. think that they could be if they came further to the front mm. it would probably address the dynamic issues i had earlier yeah i think it, it is in the i think if if, if butch vig mixed this album mm. it would be massive yeah and it sure. would be amazing but the snare i really like but that's because i like that ringy high-pitched snare yeah. it's probably a jimmy chamberlain fallout from the pumpkins for, for me it's um a bloody incubus drum sound it sounds like incubus to me oh really mm-hmm. okay because mm-hmm. their drums in in later albums are quite distant i guess or Snooper High Snares, though. Snooper Snare Snares. Snooper Snare Snares, bam. <laughs> Super Size Me Snares. Yeah. It is a nice change of pace, though, for the album. This is where we first, you know, have a chance to really drop down, I think, isn't it? And, yeah, it is. And pause for thought, I guess. Uh, there's some nice sort of religious signifiers in there. When I when I hear that every time I rise thing, I, I mm-hmm. imagine, you know, that he has risen old uh, thing. Shout out to That's it. Yeah. When's that? Is that coming? No. Mm. What, you, what are you on about? Is it, is it coming? Clean <laughs> boy. So, is it is the next one coming? Yes or no? Oh my I've god! I've just had a mental thought. Right, Easter, right? Eggs. That's the that's that's the link to what I'm about to say. I was looking at this thing on Instagram last night, and it's a, a contraption that you put an egg in, right? 
and then you pull on two ends. It's got two handles on it, and right. you pull it so the egg wiggles in the middle. And then you boil the egg, and when you open it, the yolk is mixed with the Scram- white. Scrambled. What? Yeah, inside, no, the, inside the egg. What? When you take it out, it's just like this green, like... Green? It looks green. It could be, you know, it's like an off-yellow. Like the, your egg, the, so, your you, egg's gone off, mate. So you boil the egg, skin it, and then what's in there? <laughs> you absolutely <laughs> cannot say it. you skin an egg. What'd you do then? De-shell you it. You take you, the shell off. What are you talking about? You peel an egg, you fucking idiot. De-shell it works, so no. What's it in, oh, yeah. you dumb bum? No, it's peeling, he's right, he's peeling. Oh my God, what is wrong peel. with you, you fucking idiot? What, it's better than skin it, isn't it? Oh, yes, it is better than skin it. You don't, yeah. you don't hang it from, a fucking, from the rafters and you, let it age and then fucking take this flay it skin let it skin it with, oh. with my eggs i always i always take a knife down the middle and take its guts out and then oh. i let it hang for a few days let it mature Why are we talking about eggs uh, easter rising oh. you you started this <laughs> well i didn't I did. carry on where were you um i was talking about uh the yeah the religious uh aspects but we've yeah we've got that every time i rise and there's uh there's the bleeding heart thing you know the visualization of the, mm-hmm. the bleeding heart uh or as i looked it up you know i looked it up and went into this this thing and it's the most sacred heart of Jesus. This uh, uh, it's one of the most widely practiced and well-known Catholic devotions, wherein the heart of Jesus is viewed as a symbol of God's boundless and passionate love for mankind. So that's what the old bleeding heart uh, ah. uh, signifies. Just so you know, just so you I know. like that. Like I loved it with Andy Hull, and I love it with this, where people who have gained some distance from the religion they were brought up with mm. still referencing it and still yeah. using those references in the music. I love that. For uh, some reason, there's something yeah. about it. You, you can't argue. I mean, it's the greatest story ever told, isn't it? That's why, they, that's why it is yeah, that, isn't it? Right. It's, you know what? As, as, an absolute, as a fictional piece, the Bible is one of the most interesting. Well, he it said is. it. As, yeah, it is. Even, yeah. even, if, <laughs> yeah. even if it all happened, it's still a fictional reinterpretation of the whole thing that happened. That's that. I think everyone, yeah. I think everyone, Christians included, can agree with that. It's right. Anyway, it's a great story, isn't it? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. You watch the Passion of the Christ, and if you, if you, if religion didn't exist, you'd be like, you know what, man, fucking good idea. That you want to talk about Limbiscuit? You want to mess with Limbiscuit? No, you can't mess with Limbiscuit. Why? Because we get it on. Why? When? Every day and every night. That's right. See the platinum thing right here. Yeah, we do. We be doing it all the time. Old school soldiers, <laughs> the hot shit, the hot shit, putting belts in the mosh pit. Miles. You know that's, that school disco where I played uh, for the first time? Oh, yeah, with the helmet on. on. I remember doing the roll. I remember, you know, the Did rolling. The, was it over your head? Mm-hmm. No, no, no. because uh, no, tractor wheels aren't, you know, I'm from the country, oh, aren't course. I? Of course, yeah. They're yeah. there at sort of waist yeah, level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to talk about Limbiscuit or not? Yeah. Do you I'll, do wanna... it, I'll do it later. Let's move on to track six, which is called Black Eyes. You were scratching your beard on the way in. That loud? Have, a, have another blast. Whoa. Oh, <laughs> Asuma. Is that, what, is that how you pronounce it? Asuma. Asuma. That's what they say, isn't it? If you'd like to hear any more of that, I'm setting up a little uh, side hustle. Uh, one of the hundred, one of the side hustles that Charlie has for every episode. 
You're a busy man. Oh my God, I do do that, don't I? You yeah. do, that's your running joke. Yeah. And you've done none of them. Lyrics. <laughs> what was that? Sorry, I was just—I have some leftover buttons on that. I just thought I'd press one to see if it fitted. It was—it was Tom Petty. Oh, get on, boy. Um, so yeah, that was track six, "Black Eyed," the fourth single from the album, released eighth of October two thousand and one. Pretty much a year afterwards. That surprises me as a single. You know that? Yeah. You—you right. you have to contextualize things. Like if you were to look at the charts back then, it probably fits more. Yeah, you're right. One of the biggest That's things. A good point, Carl. One of the biggest helpers that has happened, I think you've done it the most, Chris, is bringing in stuff that happened around this album or the album in question. Yeah. Because that helps me then be more forgiving of single choices and creative choices because I'm like, ah, this is what was happening then. Yeah, that's true. And this is probably the easiest one to place, isn't it? The easiest time period for us to place. Yeah. You mm. know? yeah. Um, and we get that big wall of uh, wall of guitar thing on here as well. Like- Huge, yeah. I feel like the musicianship and the the dynamics in the writing is so good. It just really does frustrate me how it's not i mean i I, i'm gonna buy this on vinyl to have a listen as well because i don't know whether it's an mp3 compression thing that's that's shortening like narrowing those big moments for me it's funny you say that because i i put with this song i said that um i don't know if i can get on board with kind of a repetitive verse you know because obviously this song it's got one kind of verse it repeats i can get on board with that if musically things dynamically change and things move but when it's got a standard structure and Mm. repeats and the lyrics are doing the same thing. I can't really get on board with that okay. because nothing has momentum. It's mm. just doing the same thing. And like you say, maybe on vinyl, there'll be more of a dynamic difference. Yeah. It's got all the parts for me. All, all those like little psychedelic bits. Yeah. I love it. It's some got all the, the parts. Some of the guitar parts in, in this entire album are really, really interesting. Yeah, especially ne- like, those little lead lines. Yeah, I can never guess where they're going. I, I know that there's yeah. a big um, Sonic Youth uh, influence on Huge. Yeah, Brian yeah. Marco, isn't there? But, and, and it certainly seems like there's that in there. Actually, that probably is my favorite. My favorite part of the the album is the way that the guitar lines and stuff mm. are, are approached. They tie in really nice. Yeah, they they, they almost um, they never quite sit in a in the usual. They never sit in the the comfortable, predictable um, area, and yeah. that that always gives it that that's what that's what gives this its own identity. Totally, and that's what always fascinated me mm. with Billy Corgan again going with Smashing Punk is it was never something that you would. It's not just a pentatonic little lick. It's a real thought out mm. or, or not thought out thing where it's playing by ear rather yeah. than playing by shapes. Yeah. But yeah, I love it. And they were, I, as far as I could tell, I think at this point they were, I didn't see that they were touring with anybody else, but the three of them, I think they were, they Ooh. were just a three piece. They looked that well. way. Yeah. yeah. That way. You know. Killing is, it as well. Yeah. But yeah. they wanted this album to sound super, uh, super live as well, didn't they? Mm. And, and mm. loud. Know, loud and live. Mm. Yeah. And, mm. but you know, we we're talking about it being, you know, watching a few live videos earlier and, that's the beauty of this, isn't it? So you can hear this and go, there's nothing live that isn't going to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, you know, if you take some records now, you're like, my God, this sounds lackluster. How are they going to do that live yeah. as well in some ways? Yeah, someone's going, ah. Yeah. But yeah. I think it, they moved on from that for, uh, in the next album on Sleeping With Ghosts, I think. I think that that was them then leading into synthesizers and, and keys and stuff. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I think. Uh, which is funny because again, all these topics we we've, we spoke about that with Tame Impala, wasn't it? Yeah, James uh, yeah. Oh yeah, of course it was Tame Impala. No, no, we just it was embracing that like all synthesizer. Yeah, uh, from lonerism into currents. Exactly. Yeah yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I like what I like about this song is the self-deprecating nature because people love to hate Brian Malko. And you will fall on one side of the fence. There's mm-hmm. no one who goes, oh, he's all right. It's either I love the guy or I fucking hate him. 
And I fall on the side of, I actually quite love him. I love that he was always so, he was a bit like a Liam Gallagher in that he loved to be hated in a way where he would just live the rock star yeah. mentality. Seemed it, yeah. And everything he would do was, he, he loved pissing people off. And there's a line in this song, it says, borderline bipolar, forever biting your nuts. And he explained in an NME article that that lyric is him acknowledging the fact that he's an irritating little shit at sometimes. And winding people up the wrong way just seems to be part of his nature. Even if it isn't intentional, it's something that he does without trying. It's his cross to bear, but he's learning to live with it. Mm. And he talks about that quite a bit in various interviews, where, especially around this time where he was start, where I think they were all starting to grow up a little bit once this album was recorded. And they seem a little bit more together in the interviews I was reading. There was yeah. an, there's an archive of all the press interviews for this on the, the placebo archive or something. Yeah. And I read through them. And one, it lets you, it, it gives you an insight into how fucking cool press was back then. Like Kerrang articles and stuff. You forget when you don't look at these magazines anymore. But everything is just like shits and fucks and everyone is going nuts. Yeah. And it's really yeah. good. Although, just to, just to jump right in there, I did find it really interesting where, you know, all of these, uh, all the lads mags were dominating as well at that point. Yeah. The, it, you go back and you go to FHM and stuff like that mm -hmm. and, you, and you read some of the questions where I'm like, Wow, God, we've changed. Oh, we wouldn't man. ask half of the questions. Mate. I found that I found some re, some of that reading a bit heavy, and I was like, wow. There's some of them where it starts off, and it's like, um, you look a bit like a woman. Um, how you? Why are you doing that? Like, was it was yeah. one of the FHM ones? Yeah. And he's like, he's like, oh well, well, I play into that. So that's why I started wearing makeup because yeah. it confuses people. But it's like, hi, my name is Barry Manilow. Nice to meet you. Why do you look like a girl? It's like just yeah. mental stuff that yeah. would, nowadays would you would just be absolute cancellation. No, it's somewhere else on one of the other songs, maybe it'll come up. I, I write down some just from one article. I just write, write down some really interesting questions. Yeah, like, just imagine being an interviewer asking. Yeah, I know questions. it's mad, and because they all had a personality. Then they were they were in themselves icons. Yeah. So let's move on. This is now track seven called Blue American. I wrote this novel just for you. It sounds pretentious, but it's true I wrote this novel just for you That's why it's vulgar, that's why it's blue And I say thank you I say Track 7, Blue American I quite like the feel of that you know it's nice it's somber isn't it mm, mm. very very somber isn't it and it's one of those i've started paying more attention now to songs that hit the middle of an album because it feels like in the past episodes with there's always been a connotation drawn to that mm. be it with the staves the middle album being a point of safety to go back to the roots yeah and with you know people tend to hide in the middle of the album i feel like he's doing the same thing here he's being quite quite confessional quite vulnerable quite open taking down the guise of brian molko and being Brian Malko, yeah, the, yeah. The, the original. Yeah, yeah. He, he references in interviews that he doesn't, when people talk to him about the way he presents himself, he's like, well, I don't walk around in a house in fishnet stockings and makeup. It's like, he is a character. And I feel like this pulls that character away. He says it's uh, three and a half minutes of self-disgust in yeah. American style. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And he's attacking a lot of things. He's, you know, he's going against his culture, his history. He's going against psychiatry and there's a lot of confrontation in this song and then after that he has that second verse where he addresses his mum. yeah yeah dead ahead and it's really nice because he says that he did that in the purpose of hoping that she might like that it is it is him actually direct addressing his mother 
It's not a metaphor or a character as he has done in some of the songs. He says that, you know, normally she's probably quite disapproving of their work and the messages that they put across, but he hoped that this might put a smile on her face and just let her know that he does still love her and she is, he is still her boy. Yeah, yeah. And I quite like that when he says that, the, the last line of that verse is like isolated. There's no instrumentation. All the instruments have dropped out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just that. Hi, mum. Hi, mum. Yeah. It's a classic, but you know, calling the song Blue American, it's a classic American thing that it's the... The, the running joke of people, of normal people, if you will, or, or, or the general public mm. being on TV. The old running joke is always, hi, mum, I'm on yeah, TV. Yeah, sure. yeah. And it's that kind of thing. It's almost looking down at his mum, not in a not in that way, but from from the heights of his success and being yeah. like, hi, mum, like a direct mm-hmm. message to her, which yeah. is really sweet. There's a few other little lyrical uh, nuggets in here that, that people may or may not know the definitions of, I guess. Um, Uncle Tom, I guess people probably would know. Um, so the Uncle Tom trope, he's, the, he's this, this sort of fictional slave. He's from a book called Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, which was actually the biggest selling book of the 1800s, uh, actually. And uh, it's written by this uh, abolitionist, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe. So it's from 1852. Uh, it was meant to rally the moral sentiments of whites against the horrors of slavery. And it succeeded. That book succeeded in doing so. Uh, but the character of Uncle Tom so I'm reading this here, um, has become synonymous with servility and self-hatred. So that's that's what that Uncle Tom character represents. And alongside that, we also get ebonics. Now ebonics is, um, or ebonics, I, I would assume it's ebonics, meaning black speech. This is from the Linguistic Society I'm reading here. So it's a blend of the words ebony, uh, so black, and phonics for sound. It was created in 1973 by a group of black scholars who disliked the negative connotations of terms like non-standard Negro English. So it's it's um, being acceptive of some of the slang, some of the pronunciation that would usually be disregarded as improper English and mm-hmm. embracing that. And not everyone was for it. Maya Angelou um, actually wasn't as, you know, as a, a, a name to pin to it. Uh, but I just find it interesting that th- this topic comes up, this racially charged topic comes up. We get mm-hmm. it again in Hemoglobin later on in the album, talking about race. I find that a really difficult topic for these three white guys to be talking about i just find it an interesting and and a little bit of a, a fraught subject not that not that no one's is exempt from talking about race relations like obviously mm. I, I just wasn't you know if, if i hadn't delved into this i wouldn't have really necessarily picked up on these things absolutely yeah which yeah. is what this is all about it's education yeah i mean let's get to it at hemoglobin when we yeah when we'll pick it back line. up yeah. um i had one last anecdotal little piece of information that was um that Brian Molko would often watch TV whilst he would just lie around playing his acoustic guitar. And he was watching a program about novelists and writers and their search to get their book published. And that inspired the lyrics, I wrote this novel just for you. He was lying there with his guitar, kind of playing around with chord structures, watching these people trying to get their novels out there. And I wrote this novel just for you. That whole sentiment to the song came from him just watching a bit of TV. Oh, there you go. Which is interesting. Booty. So we should all be watching TV. Yeah, exactly. Watch more TV, I think, is the general message of this song. (laughs) So let's move on. This is track eight, Slave to the Wage. Track eight, Slave to the Wage. 
I really like that. I do, man. I, I think it's great. Yeah, I think this too. is a different, it's different, but it's placebo. Yeah. And it, it fits in the album, but it's really good. Uh, just the top notes for that. That was the second single from the album, released 25th of September, the year 2000, reached number 19 in the UK charts. What are you saying on the chat? Max. Um, I really like that tune. I yeah. thought it was a really good one. And I thought it was much needed place in the album for me to re-engage because I was losing my way of touch beforehand. Okay. Um, we're now coming into the second half of the yeah, album. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I, I like where it's placed. I like the tune. Um, the video is obviously pretty epic. It's um, same director, Howard Green. Green Howg. Green Howg. Green Howg. So he's, he's done a few videos for Placebo. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the video feels very Matrix to me. It, of that kind yeah. of era and that kind yeah. of... Same year. Yeah. There you go. When I watched it, I was assuming... Uh, it was going to be the same director as Plug-In Baby, you know, Muses. Yeah, yeah, Baby, yeah. And it is. He, he oh, is it? Yeah, oh, nice. He directed that video. Good too. shot. Yeah, because it's that same thing. I mean, it's a similar, similar concept where they're sort of like peeling off their skin in here. Mm. And in Plug-In Baby, you've got like all this body dysmorphia stuff um, uh, and and metamorphosis in, in that video. So, Did you ever watch, right, <clears throat> there's one for you. Did you ever watch when you were a kid? Maybe, well, we, we would have been what? Early teens, Remember Rock DJ by Robbie Williams came out? Yeah. When yeah. He and, and after the watershed, yeah. it, the video would change. Yeah. So you'd watch it in the daytime and it would just be like Robbie Williams doing some rollerblade and you'd be like, man, this is a fucking jam. <laughs> and then at nighttime, he would do the same thing, but he would peel all of his skin off until he was just organs and then a skeleton. Mm. That's bloody that was horrible. fucked. Yeah. but That was when the watershed counted for something. Yeah. Because I remember the clear distinction of knowing I was up late when I'd be flicking through Mate, the music channel. When Robbie day. Williams would come on and yeah. put yeah. enough for WrestleMania and in between fights, yeah. I'd put fucking MTV on. Get scared and then watch someone get suplexed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and you, oh, what's this? Smack my what up? Smack my <laughs> yeah. Mom, okay, I'll watch this bed. one. What? Yeah. <laughs> is this what going out is? Yeah. <laughs> um, no, this for me uh, felt like a really uh, clear, a clear movement forward. Like there was no like, there's no fluff on this. It, exactly. Just, lots of this felt really, really right. Yeah. Um, it's not clouded by anything. Is I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. um, love the like. The guitar parts and um, everything yeah. fits on this everything. Tree. Just really, yeah, really does well. Yeah, that's as much as I need to say about it. Really, there you, you know? go. Ah, yeah. uh, this has been between the tracks, eh? <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Good night, God bless. Um, so let's talk about Scott Peering. I guess this is a good time to bring him up. So Scott Peering was a music publicist in the industry for a long, long time. He was one of those people that would take your music and get it played on radio, get you TV slots. He was just the gatekeeper to that side of things, and he would be a very good. People would lean on him for approval or disapproval of the music. They'd yeah. like, listen, do you think this one should be a single? And he'd be like, I don't think I'm going to get you much with that. And so on. And the whole album was dedicated to him. So this entire album was dedicated to Scott Peering, um, who died of cancer, unfortunately, in January of the year 2000. Also, the Stereophonics dedicated their album, Just Enough an Education to Perform, which was dedicated to Scott Peering as well. And the song being called Slave to the Wage was... After hearing about Scott dying, this is when Brian kind of wrote those feelings into a song. Right. And so he says, um, Slave to the Wage is a song about not working yourself into an early grave. The day I recorded the vocals to that track was the day I found out that Scott Peering, the legendary plugger and our friend, had died. And I was thinking about him that morning. There was a cloud that was hanging over us that day. I strangely felt his presence in the room. And that's... It's interesting because he, he was known as a workaholic. He lived and breathed the industry and, and the music and, and worked himself really hard. And I guess that's what this song is kind of addressing. Okay. Definitely doesn't seem to wallow in that sentiment, does it? It's like, you know, when we, we were talking about euphoria earlier and 
this album lacking it. I think is is that what that's what Brian was saying, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, this feels really elevating. This song it, it does, feels it really does. Um, euphoric uh, to me, uh, and I find knowing about that about the the way it was written or the lyric, the way the lyrics were written, I find that a, an interesting. It's not a contrast, but you know, I get I get writing a song that has uh, a feeling of euphoria in it for someone, but um, it's an it's an interesting one. I think. I think that's one of my favorite musical vehicles is the juxtaposition of emotion where the lyric can have one dark connotation and the music can have a more uplifting mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. And you then have to make the decision about how it affects you. Exactly. Yeah. I feel like they are, they're the most powerful. That's a very powerful way of delivering that. Yeah, definitely. Cause it's like, it depends how you feel on the day. If you're, if you're in a bit of a bad mood, you might listen to it. Or if you're in a down mood, you might listen to a song like this and be quite somber about it. Or if you're in a good mood, you can still listen to it. It's not your, it's not your sad song. Yeah. Well, I, like I said earlier up top, I am back in. Uh, I am back in work this week, so it's the slave to the wage uh, sentiment <laughs> yeah. that comes in. And then, um, just in rounding off that point, and um, we do get a mention of Maggie's Farm in there as well, which is um, which is a Dylan song. Mm-hmm. I-, I love that whole sentiment because it's something that we don't really. I don't feel like people acknowledge enough. Well, the slave being a slave to the wage. Being a slave to the wage, it's like you know everything in this world is a construct, including especially money, and so. We all go through our lives mindlessly being a slave to the wage or being a hamster on the wheel in an environment that we didn't choose to be put into. This mm, is something mm. that is a construct, you know. The idea of freedom is one that lives within a box and within a vacuum. And so songs like this always really speak to me. It was always that, what was that song? Um, oh, Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve. And you've got that, try to make ends meet, you're a slave to money, then you die, was one of their lyrics. Mm. And it's always so poignant for me because it's true. It's like you spend your whole life thinking that validation and success and everything means you've done well in this life, Mm. but realistically your business and your successes are not going to be at your funeral and they're not going to come with you when, Mm. when the time comes. This is it. This is it. Very poignant. Mm. Poignantly said. So don't worry about your 2.4 children and your 1.2 goldfish and your 3.6 cars. Exactly. Yeah. 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 You might read that quote out, man. That's a good one. Oh, you said me that. (laughs) Hang on. Did you, did you, (laughs) That's from a quote from Ryan. It'd be uh, amazing if you just accidentally said that. Oh, uh, no, no, no. That, yeah, <laughs> that was just me, mate. Um, no, so the, the quote, um, what should I pick this up, actually? The song tells of an individual, believe in yourself and have the courage to chase your dreams. If you do, the rewards at the end are tenfold versus doing what your parents tell you to do. Get a good job, get married, have 2.4 children, 1.2 goldfish and 3.6 cars. To a lot of people, that's the epitome of personal success. Which is why so many people go through a midlife crisis. People reach a point in their lives and go, is this it? And it's true, man. We all do. That, that is the midlife crisis where people start to, it's the classic, you know, dad went out and bought a red car. Mm. It's like, you do get to a point in life where you, you are so, you're educated through it that in school, you go to school, you do good, you get good grades, you're going to get a good job. You do all of that stuff, expecting that by the time you become an adult, everything's going to be fine. And you've paid your dues as a as a young person, and when you get older, there, there'll be no problems because you did you followed all the right mm-hmm. steps. Yeah. When you get there and realize that that's not the case, and things are you know, you're no more happy than the person down the road. You start to question that, mm-hmm. which is why you then try and change things up and leave your wife, buy a red car, and move to Florida and start gambling. Sell your sell your gold watch. Sell your gold watch. Yeah. yeah. So it's an interesting concept mm. in general, man. Great song. Uh, but can we move on to a commercial for Levi because time is money. Let's do that. Eh? Time is money. <laughs> hey. hey, I like what you did there, Chris. I do. Yeah, this is track nine, a commercial for Levi. 
Track nine, commercial for Levi. I really like that song. It's so warm, isn't it? Warm and lovely. Uh, when happy. you don't listen to the when you don't listen to the lyrics, it's so warm and lovely, isn't it? Yeah, but again, it's that like we talked about in the last song, the juxtaposition of happy and happy music and and somber lyric. See that? Yeah, we were talking about it before, and I totally agree with you. But I don't think that this production and uh, the way it sounds frames the theme very well. No, but I think that's a purpose thing. Yeah, I think no, that, that is the... That's... Yeah, but I feel like sometimes, like you say, you can, you can listen to it one day and you go, cool, and then the other day you listen to it another way. But with this, you can't listen to it in that sense because it, it isn't uplifting enough or, or dynamic enough to push you into a certain mood. I think it just sounds... It, to me, it, personally, it doesn't work. Okay. Personally. Well, that's good. We've got some contrast on it. Yeah. To me, this fills the gap of... You, you remember... Um, I think it was the Foo Fighters first album and you got Big Me on there mm-hmm. and Big Me to me was always a, a jokey tune that didn't really fit it was just like this real happy little ditty <clears throat> and this filled that void for me where it's got that like it's not, it's not similar in any way in terms of musically but it is that happy jovial little ditty in the middle of the album yeah I don't I don't think it doesn't work personally I, I think I quite like I, I like it's extreme uh, juxtaposition there's a, there's a great shopping list in there you've got Trojans, you got uh, Valium, Cherry Wine, Coke, Ecstasy, uh, and you know you got a little. Have you, got... log- have you logged into my Ocado? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, is Ocado too middle? I've for? also got Golden Showers written down. Is that something you would have ordered or? Uh, no, I don't order those. Oh, okay. that's mine. That's they my come, list. They come with the flag. <laughs> piss on. People. Yeah, <laughs> ah, pissing on people. Ah. Eh? Oh, it smells. Ah, piss. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I do like it. I like the warmth of the, the entire thing. I like, I like the um, darkness of the lyrics against it. This is where I wrote down those FHM questions, actually. Okay, let's hear them, let's hear them. This is what they asked. Uh, questions, one. Ever had that dream where you're having sex with Madonna, but her vagina has teeth? That's one question. Second question, so have you boffed anyone famous? Uh, third Boff. question, boffed. Third that, se- boff means fart, man. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Yeah. Boff. Yeah, boffed. oh, boffed. <laughs> That's what they call me in. Well, I'd rather you, I'd rather you boffed on me than than boffed me. You yeah, know. you've oh. you've gone a bit pale. Is it because I boffed? <laughs> is it? Okay. Yeah, that's what I got called in school though. Boff, isn't it? Is it? That's no, a boffin, isn't it? Yeah, but a boff. Oh yeah, boff boff short for boffin. Yeah, is anyway, it? Yeah, boff a boffin is uh, someone who's smart. Like Walter the Softy in the Beano, he was a boffin. Yeah, exactly. Never heard him called boff though by Dennis. Well, no, because you know time is money. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> now you know <laughs> we can't, away, we can't say boffin anymore. Yeah. Um, uh, question three, a rock star's popularity skyrockets as soon as they kick the bucket. Have you set yourself a time limit on becoming a dead legend? That was the third one. Nice. Number four, we're compiling a survey of rock stars. What's the worst porn that you have seen? Uh, number five, finally, a scruples question. You're forced to play Russian roulette. Which five people do you invite now, to play with Now, the answer to that you? question was great. Yeah. I actually like that question. Uh, go on off. I know that all I can remember is Britney Spears. He, he had Britney Spears, Fred Durst. Yeah, and then he said he'd bring Marilyn oh, Manson because he'd, he'd fucking love it. He'd love it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's. Funny. Or he says I bring Satan because he'd love it, and they're like, yeah. "Well, you bring the devil." And he's like, "No, Marilyn Manson." I oh, that's that's, Satan. that's great. So you know who this Levi guy is, do you? Yeah. So Levi Tukovsky, who was oh, a, I didn't even get his last name. You know? Yeah, know. Levi Tukovsky, and he was a sound engineer for the band, and he talks about in general. Let's talk about the general theme. Of the song is that this song is about someone in your life pulling you away from the wrong path. Mm. is the overall arching theme of this. And the reason it's called Commercial for Levi is because one time they were in Milan, the band were in Milan um, before a show, and Brian Malko got a bit too drunk at dinner and left the restaurant, which is right opposite the venue, and there were some fans waiting outside. 
And Brian climbed on top of a Fiat Uno and started screaming, Nancy boy, doing a performance for the fans. And Levi dragged him off the Fiat Uno as the owner was approaching and waving the keys. He thought he was going to cross the road in between the two buses, the two toll buses, and Levi grabbed him as a car zoomed by. So it's quite possible that he did save his life. He said, <laughs> and he says this funny quote, he says, if I was a samurai, I'd have to follow Levi around for the rest of my life and take care of him until I saved his life. But my, <laughs> but my payback for this was to put his name in a song. Yeah. Dozo, dozo. So this net. Yeah, so this net. Um, one of the lines I did like in this song, uh, the, you know, the spunk and bestiality of it um there's this uh in th throughout all the interviews at this period in in their lives uh they go on about um them them describing their previous tour as being a a trail of uh blood and spunk but did you see what he said about this about leaving breadcrumbs did you see? No. he said uh uh well this is this is how the question was phrased so during this year's tours you've mopped up the trail of blood and spunk that you left throughout europe last time and brian said um we left a trail of breadcrumbs this time so we could find our way back to the little house in the forest. But you do need to cut loose. If you feel that you deserve to, then you do. If you feel you don't, then you don't. So I quite like that they're, they're, they're sort of like straightening, straightening up a bit and flying right a little bit. Yeah. This album seems to serve as a time where they've straightened themselves out. I think mm -hmm. album one and album two was absolute debauchery. Yeah. Moving on? Yeah. Right. Let's move on. This is track 10, Hemoglobin. That's stuff that's in your blood. That was track 10, hemoglobin. It's a good word, isn't it, hemoglobin? Yeah. It's quite satisfying to say. Hema, yeah, hemoglobin. When I was growing up, uh, uh, my sister was taking all of her major exams to become a doctor, and she would sit me down when I was like six, and she would give me the book of, of just some of her research and some of the, the, the terms that she needed to learn. And I was like six, having to try and read some of these words out, and I'd be like, um, I think it's... Amy <laughs> yeah. She'd be like, oh God, this is useless. I imagine you looking exactly the same, but just tiny. Yeah, it's just a small version of me, exactly. Little pocket Charlie. And little, this beard and everything. Cool. Okay, <laughs> cute. Uh, this is... Uh, <laughs> I do like that move. Uh, I love this song because the intro sounds like a Skype ringtone. It does, a actually. A Skype calling in sound. Yeah. It does. I didn't realise yeah, that yeah. until you pointed it out, but yeah, yeah, it does. Sorry for ruining it for you. Yeah. No, let's, let's have a little blast of it just to give people some reference. I think it, it is. It is very Skype, yeah, isn't it? Very it Skype. Is very, very much a Skype. I'm into that. Feel that. Pre-Zoom, that Skype. Oh, Prum. The mix sounded pretty close on this track to me. I know we've referenced the mix of this before, but for me, everything felt a bit too much in the same band. Oh, everything yeah. felt very close to each other. Yeah. I think, uh, I think the mix of the album is something I do have a, a recurring problem with, mm. but that doesn't take away too much. Yeah, but I put the sound, for this song, I put the sound is thick, sludgy, industrial, and unrelenting suitably uncomfortable that's that's how it I is uncomfortable it. so yeah. i i like that in i like that in this te in this territory i like it i did actually put as well on the back of the mixing i said it makes me feel uncomfortable which is probably a very good vibe for this tune mm. Mm. yeah exactly exactly yeah, yeah. at this point i'm starting to recognize you know at this point in the album there's definitely a way that that 
Brian Malko writes melodies, isn't there? This, yes. It, it, yeah. It's again, it's it's like the way that he plays guitar. It's, that is far from comfortable and it's far from conventional. Mm. But that that is just there. That's a calling card. That's what makes placebo placebo. It often makes a band a band when someone's yeah. got definitely lyrically though. This one, this is a this is for me. This is a bit of a dodgy territory. So. The point of this song is it's their version of the the Billie Holiday song "Strange Fruit," which is it's an incredible song. It's a it's a sad song. Um, it's a, a shocking song. Non, um, it was given the prize of uh, Time Magazine's Song of the Century as well, which wow. is is Maybe. some accolade. But for those of you that that wouldn't know anyway, the "Strange Fruit" in Billie Holiday's song is referring to the lynching in 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 Southern states. Uh, it's actually, it wasn't written by her. It's actually a poem. I don't know how much you guys went into this anyway, but it was a poem called Bitter Fruit written by a Jewish school teacher called Abel Mirapol. And it was from, uh, there's a really famous photo, you know, again, a sad photo taken by Lawrence Beitler or Beitler, depending on how his name is said, um, of the lynching of two guys, Thomas Shipp and Abram Smith in Indiana. It's quite, it's a very famous photograph. It's a, it's a it's a tragically har- har- famous. Yeah, tragically famous, harrowing photograph. But obviously... Um, and that's of two slaves hanging yeah, in the exa- tree. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and the thing is about this is, my problem with this is, again, it's, it's similar to what we were talking about before, is is it appropriate for us to be talking about this in a song, to rewrite this song? I mean, the song is written from the perspective of one of the, the people that is, one of the guys that's hanging from a tree. Exactly, yeah. So um, they've heard this and, you know, Brian Molko was a massive fan of Billie Holiday's. Mm. He considers her to be one of the best vocalists of all time. Yeah. And what he's done is heard that song and heard her opinion of someone walking through and seeing the people hanging from the tree. And this song is written from the perspective of one of the people hanging from exactly, the tree, like you yeah. say. And I think it's, everyone's well within the rights to discuss that. You, but but, it, but is it, I don't know, is it appropriate to, to rewrite a song from that person's perspective when, when obviously Brian Marco isn't going to experience that? He's not, we you know, we're in a different um, social climate we're in a different time where he's he's of a different race you know i, I just find that a, a, a bit of a, a tough sell i guess with with good research i feel like anyone regardless of race and denomination mm. can shine light on issues and yeah. try and empathize with issues yeah but also you have to tread very carefully and make sure that your research mm. is right yeah the hemoglobin of it is that him basically saying at the end of the day we're all the same we've all got that in our blood we all share that you know how does that come into effect in the track yeah i don't know actually i think maybe because hemoglobin is the thing that carries oxygen in your blood i think yeah and i think when you are hung your brain is starved of oxygen which is how you die well that's the chorus hemoglobin is the key to a healthy heartbeat that's the Mm -hmm. chorus so yeah i guess guess, yeah so i think it's about it's about hanging in kind of oxygen i i like its sound i like this song sound i um again maybe maybe praise for for trying to approach a difficult subject but well it raises the question because do you feel like you would be having this conversation and learning about this if it wasn't for this song raising awareness can be a byproduct of tackling yeah. tough issues yeah i'll take that so there's it, this may have made a lot of white people think yeah 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 you know because because you know I, I can assume that placebo's demographic at the time was predominantly early 20s white american standard working class people yeah who might not have had any reference to any any of the stuff that happened yeah so you know this might shine a light on it you know yeah. but anyway 
all of that to one side, let's make a move onto the next track, which is track 11 called Narcoleptic. Track 11, Narcoleptic. Feels like one of those floaty... It does. ...sleepy... It does. Tie it into the name. Narcolepsy is a neurological disorder that is caused by the brain's inability to properly regulate and maintain natural sleep patterns. In a normal sleep pattern, REM or REM sleep, which is the dream phase of your sleep, takes about 90 minutes of sleeping to begin. However, narcolepsy creates an interruption in the natural waking and sleeping cycles and causes those with the condition to experience REM sleep at the very beginning of their sleep cycle and also causes random durations of REM sleep suddenly at any time of the day or night, according to the National Center for Biotechnology Information. Oh, no, this is good. According to the National Center for Biotechnology Information, canines and rodents also experience narcolepsy. Really? Wow. Yes. That's interesting because what that means is at random points during the day, you will slip into sleep, but immediately into dreaming. Yeah, I guess that's so what that must cause people with narcolepsy wow. to not really be able to distinguish reality from yeah, right. dream. Well, I, I, I've never met anybody with narcolepsy. I don't, know, I don't know enough about it oh, to right. comment, to to comment uh, on it. I think Paul Blart Mallcup has narcolepsy. The character or the character, yeah. Oh, does he? Mm-hmm. In for, the film. for comedic purposes. In the I film, assume. I think he, yeah, because yeah. he's like lying on the floor, I think, about to fall asleep during a really difficult yeah. situation, and there's like a, a rusty old lollipop under the desk, and he like wiggles himself to it to get the lollipop so we can come back which is where all of my scientific <laughs> that's wow. thinking about lack of blood sugar came the, bl- the blood sugar i was yeah. like oh, i didn't know that was a thing shout out paul black uh kurt cobain was an undiagnosed uh, narcoleptic apparently was he winston churchill was narcoleptic was he no yeah. way yeah harriet tubman who was the who was the pioneer of the underground railroad uh, she was a narcoleptic it feels a bit too wishy-washy for placebo does it mm-hmm I think we're getting to the point where where we're winding down the album now. Yeah. And so with that, I think there has to come some sense of slowing down. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. But I don't know. It just it didn't really hit any kind of emotion in me. This song, I just it just kind of washed over, and I don't know if that was what it was supposed to do. Mm. And you know, you were saying earlier, and I thought it was a really good point that people kind of hide tracks in certain points of an album. Well, they can do, and I felt like this was neither here nor there. Okay. There are some nice songs. I'm, I'm with you, Charlie, uh, in essence, I think, that it's it doesn't hit uh, home too much, really. Uh, but there's some, there's some nice parts to this. I, I really like the fluid guitar lines, and um, there's a few little synthesizer parts. I, I, if anything, I just wish they'd been embracing maybe the synthesizer um, parts more. More yeah. often, there was, there was room. There was room to experiment more. There was room to push it sonically, mm. and I'm mm. not sure if they got there. Yeah, yeah. I think I, that was what was coming with the next album, essentially. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I like the idea of some contrast because I I like the idea of Brian Malko being a self-confessed and self-fulfilling rock star. Yeah, and to hear these more stripped back tracks, I quite like them. I think they show some mm-hmm. contrast to the general theme of the album. Sure. Um, talking about Brian being a rock star, there was a good quote from him. He says. You're supposed to look up on stage and see something fantastical, which makes you want to be a freak. 
Rock was never meant to be normal, but so much of what passes for rock music these days, you could play to your granny. He says, I remember David Gahan from Depeche Mode saying, being a rock star is dangerous hard work. He says, he's right. You need to take a break from time to time to sellotape your brain cells back together. For a while, we become cartoon characters and we need to become normal people again. You need to be able to get back to normality so that when the time is right, you can be a proper rock star again. And I feel like these songs illustrate that to the best mm. amount mm. where this might be him coming back together and starting to piece his brain back together before he charges himself back up and jumps back into being Brian Malka, the rock star again. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Nice Possibly. Call. Anyway, let's move on. This is track 12, Peeping Tom. Track 12, Peeping, Peeping Tom. Tom. Whoa. I just wanted to give, try. Give, give us a full-blown track 12. That was track 12, Peeping Tom. Hey, you know what? It's not as good better as watch, Carl. Better watch it? myself. <laughs> not as good though, is it? So this is the de facto end song, isn't it? This is the last listed song on the album, Peeping Tom. Yep, track we 13 get... was a bonus track. That's it. Hidden That's track. It. Yeah. And this does feel like an ender, doesn't it? I think. Yeah, it does, yeah. It does. It's very, very sad and somber. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I, whether that was intentional or not, like the last words of the album would technically be, I'm scared. Ooh. If the album finished at track 12. Ooh. What an interesting way to look at it. Mm. Carl Lewis. Well done. Well, and again, this ties into the journeys of albums, which I've become more and more obsessed with through this. And this is the classic, I, like I explain it in every album, the putting to bed moment. It just feels very, even though the last song was called Narc Narcoleptic About Sleeping, this definitely does wind me down and is another vulnerable moment for yeah. Malco. Yeah, I said it's. Uh, this feels like it's time to re recollect your thoughts and your feelings over the course of the album. And, yeah, um, yeah. I think musically it's very much that winding down thing, but you know, in terms of theme and lyrically, it's essentially about voyeurism, isn't well, it? Well, it is yeah. about voyeurism. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the old uh, peeping tom that comes from the time where Lady Godiva was doing a naked ride down the the streets of Coventry on her horse. And G Godiva isn't that a Simpsons thing as well? That's uh, MacGyver. Oh, MacGyver. Well done for playing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you get no prizes for coming second, Charlie. Uh, but no, this was, um, this was uh, who Peeping Tom was. He's some guy. There's, I think there's a statue of him in, in Coventry somewhere, this leaning out of the window and spying on uh, this naked chick riding wow. down there. That's where that came from. That's where the Peeping Tom. Got to love a bit of uh, etymology. Yeah. Uh, ever ridden a horse naked? Uh, occasionally. You ever seen a grown man naked? <laughs> <laughs> you know that? You know that is? That sounds like Tom Petty and the Simpsons. No, it's, um, it's airplane, isn't it? Ever seen a grown man naked, Jimmy? Anyway. You sound a lot like Tom Petty when you say that. You do, actually, yeah. Lyrics are the hardest part of songwriting. Lyrics are the hardest part of songwriting. Bloody That's hell. fucking good. That's good, isn't it? See? Jesus. I'm pretty good at this stuff. You can do like Prince and you can do Tom Petty in the same thing, eh? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was a really tiny, quiet yeah, one. It was, yeah. I do them all now. I can't do Brian Malka, though. Sorry about that. I haven't had enough, you know, I haven't done have enough time yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um... I do like, you know, I like some of the little uh, the little rhyming little phrases, your booze and your lose and your gear and your fear. And that's what you said, like, about the end of this, this album and mm -hmm. being scared. You know, you've, both of those, both of the second parts of those, lose and fear, are, yeah, are, yeah. Based, are based around that, that stuff. On a personality 
trip anyway, just because I'm looking at what Adam said about this. Mm -hmm. He did say, and, and you know, we are talking about lyrics here anyway. He said, uh, superficially, their words and rhyming can seem childish. So I guess you could look at that. You know, you could look at booze, lose, gear, fear, very simple mm -hmm. rhymes. Said, uh, yeah, they, it seems childish, titillating, and and jolly well crass. He he made a point of saying jolly well crass, but I believe this serves only to represent the band's personality. Is what is what yeah. he said about that. And uh, you know, the, you know, it's quite fun and it's quite a nice a nice wind down, a nice closer. Although it's not the real closer. Yes. Exactly, the real closer is track thirteen, Black Market Blood. That was track 13, Black Market Blood. I love it. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's great. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. I've said it's one of my faves on the album. It might be my favorite. Mm. Wow. But, but it's because it's the other instrumentation so welcome to me mm -hmm. to hear. Literally, that's what I wanted to hear. I think it kind of emphasizes a lot of uh, suspense and just gives me more to bite into. And it has a lot of suspense, no resolve. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of climb, 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 stop. It I think it achieves darkness in a in a different way to the rest of the album. Yeah, like it it has the the deepest and uh, the the most like yeah unknown and I don't know. It's like it's some of it's some of those string phrases and stuff are are pretty like horrific. They're like yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's worth pointing out that those were put together by Rob Ellis, who was PJ Harvey's drummer. Um, he made the arrangements for strings, cellos, and vibraphones. Brian says that it reminds him of Kurt Wilde. And he says it feels a bit cabaret to him. Really? Yeah. Oh, really? So, yeah. it's, so that's more. That's more. I guess that's more camp, then, isn't it? Really? I. I don't know. There's something really about this that just stirs up something. It is very sinister. It'd be great on a horror soundtrack. Yeah. It really would. There's some of the lyric as well. Just completely backs all of that up. The the flood and mud and blood and gives this idea that this thing just is just is almost like a living organism that's like growing and swelling and uh, or over something overflowing. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, great to hear. Is a is a piano on it? Is that all all vibraphone? Do you think? Could be piano. It's just yeah, it's cool. Lo love the melody. Yep. Yeah. I um, like how it ties. Oh in. no, there is piano. Yeah, no, there is piano. I'm just thinking. I'm just rehearing it in my head. There is piano in there. Yeah. I like how it ties in with the overall theme of the album. You've got black mar black market music being the title. Yeah. And black market blood. It, it's about like black market. The black market obviously being a place where you sell things illicitly. Uh, in this situation, blood. Yeah. And you know, in the overall theme music, it's like. I did read somewhere him describing it as like the he likes the idea of that like something being hard to obtain yeah. and kind of naughty to be listening to and in this case naughty to be talking about I think he well that's why into Peeping that. Tom was quite an, a, a good record before this as in you know that's legal in some senses as well mm, yeah, and you know it starts getting mm, into darkness yeah it ties into that whole theme of you know, illicit and illegal and dark and I put Black Market Blood into um into Ask Jeeves while I was um online excuse me and um. Uh, apparently, you know, one of the new, more recent news stories came up that there's a quite a big black market business in in Pakistan, in particular, oh, during COVID nineteen, um, offering uh, thousands of dollars for blood plasma from recovered patients. Apparently, so no way. There is a black market blood hive out there somewhere. You know, wow, mad, isn't it? 
Finally, we do get more biblical reference in here because we talk about Armageddon in here. Mm. I learned something from this. Armageddon isn't a thing. Armageddon's a place, actually. The apocalypse is a thing, but um, Armageddon is a place. Wow. Yeah. Uh, or is that too bloody? The, 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 the ver- oh, I'll tell you, it's somewhere in... Um, bloody off, uh, bloody bridal bridge off St. Knives or something else. Probably down St. Knives way. If it's not, it'll be somewhere in the Middle East, I expect. But it's um, the verses, uh, and he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Uh, the word Armageddon comes from the Hebrew words Har, meaning mountain, and Megiddo, also Megiddon, which is the name of a city. So now you've learned something more about the Bible. Uh, so it's just outside of Jerusalem. It's about 60 miles outside of Jerusalem, Armageddon. There you go. The film isn't about that, is it? Armageddon, the film. I don't think so. No, no. it's not about that. I think that's more tied to the common sense of it being attached to the end of the world. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. But oh. all in all, a decent cap to the album. I prefer that ending than if it ended with people. Me Tom. too. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, no. Do you know what? I'd prefer it if that was in the middle of the album. But For sure. Not a bad signing off that. No. Nope. So there you have it. That was Black Market Music by Placebo, suggested to us by our Patreon subscriber, Adam Chivers. So thank nice you very much, Adam. mate. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. That was a good one. I'm glad I listened to it. Yeah, I really this, enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I learned a lot from it. Do you know, but do you know what I've learned, though? And I've got no problem in saying this because Brian Malko called this his least favorite placebo album. Yeah. And this isn't Adam's favorite placebo album. And when I let this album run off, you know, through on Spotify, when I got to a few other things, I was like, actually, do you know what? Placebo are worth an exploration around this, I think. Yeah. Even some of their, some of their big... Just, just some of their singles are really, really good. Yeah, really good. for sure, they're really good. Have you got a beer there, mate? Because I could do with wetting the old whistle. Uh, this week, um, from our mates up at Beercraft, because they're now putting them together for us. We arrive now, and Diana's got some things ready to go for us. Uh, so, uh, number one, I've got from Pentrick Brewing Company. I've got Jet Glow Moon, which is an Imperial Black India Pale Ale, in keeping with the very dark and foreboding feeling of the album. I've got Das Ist Techno Sex from Upfront Brewing because, you know, it's linked to the industrialness of this album, I guess, you know. Absolutely. I bet you Brian Marco would love it in the Berg, Heine. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Burgoyne is. The Burgain. Oh, the Burgain. Get the pronunciation. Sorry, mate. And I've got the beer Galaxies Apart from Gravity Well because we, of course, we had Gravity up in Special K, didn't we? Gravity. Uh, this one, oh, this one looks nice. It's very nice. And um, just as a little token treat, I've got something from Melbourne. Actually, this Ooh, is from oh, which Australia. Is from Australia, a Foosters. Foosters. We'll have a that Foosters later. Yeah, Foosters, one, nice. One of those. So, do you mind if I pour up that while you do some signing out? Please do, mate. So again, Adam, thank you very much, mate. We appreciate you. Chris oh. was gesturing to me then to <laughs> shut up while he cracks the beer. Um, yeah, appreciate you supporting the show, mate, and sending us your album in and filling that form in. This is what it was about, wasn't it? It's what it's all yeah. about. Um, and, and we'll be, as far as I'm concerned, we'll be doing this at, towards the end of every season anyway, won't yeah, we? Yeah, this so. is going to be something that we strive to do more and more because the idea from the offset was for this to be a community-based, everyone-involved kind of thing. And like I say, at, at the end of most episodes, we really do appreciate everyone's support through this because we've had more than we could have hoped for. So yeah, now next week... We have another Patreon special because we couldn't decide between the two albums. So we yeah, we just to, we don't we don't live by our own rules. We just, <laughs> we just break rules here and there. Rage against the system, and so we decided to bring both in. So next week's album is going to be by another one of our supporters called Cody Gobert, and he has been a listener and a supporter from episode one. 
So we posted some stuff on Reddit and he got involved and yeah. left us some replies and it's been really supportive ever since. So Cody, thank you so much for your support, mate. Well, he's he's undergone a name change since the first time we talked about him. Though, he has. He was, yeah. with, he was with JPEG. And then he was Co Cody Gobert. Uh, Cody Gobert, uh, yeah. But we are, I'm on good information. It is Cody Gobert. So thank you. for Thank you, mate. We're English, you know. We don't deal with it. Yeah, we can't figure it out, you know. But yes, and his suggestion was Casey Musgrave's Golden Hour which means a lot to all the three of us, and we'll go into all of that next week. We will indeed. We should probably get the hell out of here. So, again, thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the show. That was Placebo's Black Market Music, suggested to us by Adam Chivers. My name is Carl Lewis, Chris Bunt. Let's go to the fucking pub. And Charlie Fowler. Cheers and motherfucking gal. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Between the Tracks, a book club but for music. Written, produced and presented by Carl Lewis, Chris Bunt and Charlie Fowler. Intro and outro music by Ross Chapman and Samson Jatto. Artwork by Jim Hurd at Twinfin Design Co. Thanks to our friends at Sennheiser for the support. If you've enjoyed this album and can afford to buy it directly from the artist, links have been added to our website.